This is the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from GoBundance. The tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. Listen Tuesdays for featured guests and Fridays for GoBundance member spotlights. But listen always to hear how our guests have grabbed life big. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gruber. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from GoBundance. My name is Jamie Gruber. I'm your host. And today we actually launch a second series on our podcast platform for non-member guests that are significant, that have done amazing things in life, that have truly grabbed life big. And today we're starting with a guy that I've had in my network that just is an incredible person with an amazing story that I felt needed to be shared. So I brought him on. His name is Albert Berez. He is the CEO and founder of a company called McKinley with over $4 billion, $4 billion in multifamily assets owned, not under management, a significant company, uh, mostly owning properties in the Southeast and the uh, the Midwest. But Albert has uh, an immigrant story. He is the uh, a Cuban refugee. When he was very young, he and his father and his whole family came over from Cuba right after Castro took over. And he gets deep into how how difficult that move was and what he went through, what his family went through and how he literally escaped incredible details. I can't wait till you hear that. But he also talks a bit about the new level of, of entrepreneur, the new wave of entrepreneur, especially in the multifamily investing business. He invests in workforce housing, class C type apartment buildings, and he sees such an opportunity for investors today, given the influx of social media and other ways for you to raise capital and build brands that just wasn't present for him when he was coming up years and years ago. We also talk about the multiple crises he's faced in the, in the markets and where he sees things going from here on out. A ton of information with an incredible person. If you love this episode, make sure you subscribe, like, drop a comment. Let us know what you think about Albert Perez, about this episode, about our new our new theme here. We've got non-member prominent guests that we're bringing on every Tuesday for all of you, and I hope you get a ton of joy out of that. But until then, dive in and listen to Albert Perez. Albert, welcome. Thank you for being here. Jimmy, thanks very much for having me. I'm very excited to spend time with you. I've, I've been very much looking forward to this. Same, same. Trust me. I posted on Facebook. Well, you saw it. I posted on Facebook this morning about today being like Christmas for me, the fact that I get to interact with you. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, you have a, a pretty, a pretty uh, uh, interesting and, and, and uh, I don't know, unique immigrant or even refugee story. Your father moved here, I believe, in his 40s. You were very young from Cuba. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think it was to Miami. Um, you talk about how he had a sort of restart. He had, you know, some success in Cuba and had to come here, work hard, and restart. Can you just tell me a little bit about your dad? Just what you what what you would define him as, and what he's meant to you over the course of your career? Oh my gosh, he's uh, he's everything. Um, he uh, he got us here, um, and and uh, gave us a life that we otherwise wouldn't have had. I mean, had we stayed in Cuba, we probably would have been killed. Uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and, you know, I, I won't, I won't, I won't bore you with my escape from Cuba story, but uh, it was pretty dramatic. And, and the kind of things that he had to do to get his family here, uh, I couldn't even imagine doing myself. And he did it. Um, and he, you know, a very successful man who had to start from scratch and doing uh, whatever he had to do uh, in this country as a, a refugee and an immigrant and uh, started from the ground up and, and, uh, 
and really showed us what hard work was all about. And, and, and really, you know, I, I learned about uh, persistence. Uh, I learned about a lot of characteristics that, you know, if I had to come over here and, and start over at age 43 after having a very successful life and business and family, I don't know if I could have done it. I mean, it's quite remarkable. So there's a lot of life lessons there that I am, I'm very thankful for. And, you know, and also very thankful for being in this country. This is without question the greatest country on the planet. And, you know, uh, having been a, a refugee and an immigrant and, and, and a family who started from scratch, um, we are forever thankful and appreciative. Uh, there is no place like it. If you wouldn't mind indulging me when you say, uh, don't want to bore me with your escape from Cuba, that, that there's intrigue there. Do you mind just giving a little bit of detail? Because I, I, I mean, that's not, again, that's not an experience most people have to have to not just immigrate, but escape. What was that like? What do you remember of that? I know you were very young. Well, I mean, I can, I can tell you the story because my father would tell me the story every single night for the first 20 years of my life. So I can almost repeat it. It takes about an hour. And I had an interesting, I had a little interesting exercise. My brother, who's 15 years older than I am, and my sister, who's uh, almost eight years older than I am. Um, my wife got us all together uh, recently and said, well, each of you take, tell the escape from Scuba story. And, and it was amazing uh, how identical the stories were. Now, my brother actually lived it because he was uh, he was 18. And, you know, my sister was a, a bit over 11, almost 12. And I was just over three. So, I mean, my brother did live it. In fact, he lived it with my mom and dad and uh, very directly. So, you know, his story is, is, is the most direct version. My story is a translation of what I've heard from my father over the years. Um, but it was a very, it was a very dramatic escape. You know, we shouldn't have gotten out of there. There was a lot of reasons why the, the, the communist regime at the time wanted to uh, execute my father. And, and, and um, I think they would have delighted in executing all of us, but um, he was um, masterful and creative and, and got out of there um, eight days after the revolution it was uh, December 31st, uh, 1958 is when uh, Castro took over uh, uh, Havana. And uh, he got us out of there by January 8th, 1959, which is uh, pretty heroic and, and we're alive. So God bless him. He's, he's, up, wow. he's up in uh, heaven and uh, I thank him every day for it. Yeah, he passed at the age of 93. How long ago was that? Uh, it was a little over 12 years ago now. 12 years ago. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned work ethic. You, you learned that from him, obviously, and he established that in you, I'm guessing at a very young age from the sound of it. Um, what, uh, what do you, what do you attribute that to? Is it just simply coming over and, and having observed your father for you? I mean, your work ethic is very hard. Is it observing your father? Are there, is, was there expectations from your father? What do you derive or what do you, how do you, how do you, uh, I guess most relate to the work ethic you have now and how your father taught you that? Well, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I think the practical reality is we, we didn't have a choice. So, I mean, you know, when you're, when you're faced with that, with that reality, um, you know, doing whatever you have to do to, to feed your family and survive and move your family forward is just reality. So, you know, we grew up in, 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 you know, 1959 Miami, it was, a, it was a refugee community, it was an immigrant community and, um, you know, none of us had anything. And so, um, you know, it was understood. My father would actually get up at two in the morning because he, he worked for a friend of his who uh, was in the car import export business, and so my, what my dad would do is he would he would he would drive up with a with a Volkswagen with a tow bar in front of it, and he would go pick up cars. And we were living in Miami at the time, in uh, St. Pete, Florida, or in Clearwater, or in Tallahassee, or in Jacksonville, or any one of the various places there were auto auctions, and he would bring those cars back to the port of Miami, and then they'd be exported over to um, to Puerto Rico, which is where my friends my dad's friends business was. So, I mean, he was getting up five and six days a week, um, to, to, to pick up these cars and he, and he would get paid per car 
every car he brought back out of the auto auction to the, to the port of Miami, he'd get paid a dollar amount. And so he would try to do as many cars as he could in a week. And so uh, as, as, as I was growing up, he made it a point of sticking me in that car and we drove up together and we spoke, we spent a lot of time talking. And so I, you know, I saw what it was for him to get up at two in the morning when, you know, again, at, at age 43, after having had a successful life, I don't know if I would have done it. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah, that's God, tough. Listen. That's a, that's incredible. That really is amazing. And he, he retired late, correct? Or stopped working, if you will. Wasn't he later in life when he did that? Yeah. You know, he, 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 he reluctantly retired at, uh, at 88. Wow. Reluctantly. Why, why reluctantly? I'm curious. You know, after he, you know, he was a real estate developer because he was able to, to accumulate enough money and, 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 and go back to what he did for a living in, in Cuba. Mm. And, uh, and he loved it. And so, you know, he, he, he transferred his wealth out of real estate development and into the mortgage business. He provided people second mortgages and he actually did a great job of just managing that business. And, and he had a lot of fun with it. And so he just didn't want to stop. And, you know, he was just a very active guy mentally and, 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 and loved it. And so, um, his, his second wife, um, he, he remarried, um, you know, urged him to stop because it was, he was so late in life and he, and he did, and he agreed to it. But, you know, I remember talking about age 90, he said, man, I wish I wouldn't have retired. So <laughs> it's a guy who just loved working. And he, I think what he, what he loved is he loved, he loved being challenged mentally. And so I think that challenge is what kept him alive for so long, quite frankly. That makes sense. That makes sense. Is there anything that uh, you can recall from your father's example, or maybe even words of things you learned uh, of what not to do? Maybe that you know you you took with you as you as you grew and built your own business. Oh yeah, he'd get, he, we have a series of uh, classic uh, uh, things that he would say, and 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 for a guy who lost everything at forty three um, and almost his life, you know, he'll tell you there's two things that people can't take away from you, and those two things are your education and your willingness to work hard. Everything mm-hmm. else today, they can take away. And you say, well, that seems like a little radical, but you know what? It happened to him. They took it all away. And so what he, the only thing he had to rebuild were two things, were his education and his willingness to work hard at 43. And so, holy cow, I mean, that's uh, sound logic, you know? So two, thing, two things that I've always listened to and I've, I've passed on to my kids is, you know, education and, and, and willingness to work hard. Cause those are the two things that, you know, no matter, no matter when you lose everything at, at any point in your life with those two things, you can always rebuild. And so, um, uh, I think that to me is a life lesson that I'll never forget. It's emblazoned in my forehead. Yeah. You, well, you, I've heard, uh, that you'll work maybe up to, or consistently at the 80, 100 hours a week mark, like your work ethic is, is legendary from what I understand. Is that true? Well, I think it was true at 25 and 35 and 45 and 55 and 65. I may be, I'm be winding down a little bit, but I mean, I certainly am working hard a lot. I like to work hard. I, I think I'm, I've unfortunately I inherited my uh, father's characteristic. I, I don't know how, what it would be like to stop working. I certainly, my wife would make sure that she kicked me out of the house if I, if I did nothing. So I think I'll, I'll continue to work. So is, is that, I'm curious, would you, would you work? I mean, if you were flipping burgers, would that work ethic be there or is there an element of, I don't know, passion or purpose in the work that you do that you think drives that where it almost isn't work. It, you know, it's kind of love of what you do. I don't think what I do is work. I'm absolutely passionate about what I do. I mean, I am, I am blessed. I have an amazing group of people I get to go to work with every single day. Um, we're extraordinarily good at what we do. Um, you know, we're, you know, I, ca- I kind of call it like Camelot. I mean, it's a very special, unique environment that we get to control because we have a lot of autonomy financially and otherwise. And so um, it's, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. I mean, it is, it is something that I, I am looking forward to getting up every single morning and starting to do every single day. 
And I also am passionate about providing people homes. And so I think, you know, we're in the workforce housing business, you know, we're not in the luxury housing business. Mm -hmm. And so what we do every single day is provide people homes. And these are, these are folks who are going to have to get up tomorrow morning and go to work every single day. So, you know, it, you know, we're, and, 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 and certainly coming out of the pandemic or, or working our way through the pandemic, you know, those homes are no longer homes. I mean, they're homes, they're offices, they're schools. I mean, everybody's home turned into everything. It's not just a home anymore. It's, it's every aspect of their life because they've been, they've been living every aspect of their life through the pandemic. And, and for me, providing people homes is an absolute thrill. You know, it's interesting, you know, the, the, when you hear that many hours and you associate it to work, you know, you, you, my mind goes to, man, what suffered? Like what, what, what in your life would have suffered as a result of that? But the flip of it is, you know, you were very much aligned or you have been very much aligned with what you feel is purposeful and, uh, and fulfilling for you. Right. So I guess the question is, does, does that amount of work or that amount of time committed to your passion, does it create sacrifice in any, or has it created sacrifice, uh, in any other areas of your life that you look back on now and say, man, had I not been so dedicated to what I do, this wouldn't have suffered. I'm just kind of curious. Yeah. You know, I think in, in my particular case, I have, I have an amazing blessing, which is uh, a wife who I've been married to um, for you know 40 years now and, and, and 43 years together. And so, um, you know, whatever I screwed up on, whatever I missed, which I think was a lot, she made up for times 10 and all the different things that, you know, I, that, that, that I probably could have done as a, at that time when I was growing up uh, uh, thank goodness we had her. Cause she, she was, she's, and she still is the cornerstone of our family. So Paula, Paula is a force that um, is monumental in my life. I mean, to have, to, to have a, a woman like her with me um, together as my partner, our entire lives together like this, cause you know, we were, we were kids when we got together. And so it's, it's, it's a unique blessing and, and uh, holy cow, what a great woman. So <laughs> I guess, I guess whatever I screwed up, she, she more than made up for it. Let's put it that way. There you go. I love honoring Paula. That's amazing. I appreciate you saying that. So uh, speaking of relationships, like long-term as I researched you and really kind of figured out, okay, what direction would I want to take this interview? Long-term came up a lot, like long-term with your investment strategy, but long-term in a marriage with your wife, Paula, but also long-term with your partner, right? So your, your father is a mentor of yours. I know your partner, a little bit older than you, uh, has or is uh, uh, has been or is a mentor of yours as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about, though, what do you attribute your ability to, to sustain long-term relation? I mean, your, your, your two most important ones, or maybe even your three, your father. I mean, you were so close until the very end of his life, your wife, your business partner. What attributes do you have or what do you exhibit, do you think, that, that allows you to have such success in long-term relationships? Um, you know, I think, I think a lot of it has to do with my immigrant background and uh, my refugee background. I think um, I appreciate things a lot. And I never take anything for granted. And so whether it's my wife or my partner, Ron Weiser, who's uh, told, no question my mentor, um, um, you know, those are people that you can, you can never thank enough. And so, um, you know, I think I have a fiduciary responsibility to, to my business partner. I have a fiduciary responsibility to my wife. Um, I certainly have a fiduciary responsibility to all of our employees and all of our customers. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I think commitment is uh, a cornerstone of a of a of a uh, an immigrant refugee mindset. I mean, that's you know, it's uh, you, you're not done until you're done, and you got to do your job. And so it's like my dad did his job, and he got us here, and he, and he you know, and he got us and he got us to a different place in our lives. And so um, you know, that's our responsibility to to whether it's your partner, or whether it's your wife, or the next generation. And so I I don't know, I'm. 
I'm I'm just assuming that that's the way it should be. I didn't know there was a choice. Interesting. Partnership comes up a lot in my sort of small corner of the commercial real estate investing space. And uh, it's something that scares a lot of people. I mean, it scared me, you know, like, what if you screw this up and you you hurt your partner in some way financially or, or otherwise? But uh, I think it's, it's, I love what you just said about kind of being, uh, the word I heard was gratitude, I guess, right? Thankful yeah. for, you know, what you really have thankful. with somebody as opposed to fearful, okay. right? Oh yeah. No, I mean, I'm very thankful for my relationship with Ron and, 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 and uh, you know, candidly, we'll talk a little bit more about the great work you're doing, but I mean, at the time, which I got into the business, um, you know, apartment ownership was a very difficult thing to get into. And, and there weren't many apartment quote unquote owners. And so, and it was a very tough business in terms of raising capital and a lot of different things. And so to have someone like him, um, you know, bring me into his business because uh, he had started the business uh, before we got together and, and, and had been very successful before we got together. Um, and then went on to retire and left me with the business and, you know, let, now we're partners together and, 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 and he's retired and has the confidence to, uh, to, to do what he does in his retirement. But then, you know, I'm, I'm able to lead the business in a way that's beneficial for both of us is I think a testament to our partnership. And, and, um, I think it's a testament to both him and I, who, you know, we have, we have immense amount of trust and, and, you know, our interests are aligned financially. So that makes it easy. So, you know, one does well, so does the other and vice versa. And so that's important, but, um, I think it's work. You know, I think, I think our, a business partner is not any different than a wife. I mean, I think it takes a lot of work and I think it's good to, you're going to have good times. You're going to have bad times. And so, you know, a, a real test is like you said, does it last a long time? And in our case, we've, we've been very lucky. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Uh, I'm sure it's more than luck. You know, there's a lot of intention there. It sounds like, but no luck is uh, I'm sure an equation there. Uh, with Ron. So you talked about your dad, your dad, uh, the lessons from him as a mentor, uh, a lot of them centered around his, his work ethic, his push, you know, the two things you can't take away education and, and work ethic. What's something when you think of Ron, like a lesson I got from Ron, what is that? What's that one, one or two like key lessons that jumped to mind when you think of him? Oh, you know, he's very, very persistent and mm. he's a very consistent. So, and he's, he's, he's always focused on a goal. So, I mean, I've always observed his ability to get things done. And so I've always appreciated that about him. So when he sets his mind to it, he's just very consistent. He's very passionate, but he's, but he's totally, totally focused. And he will just come back at it. he come back at it. He'll come back at it until he gets it right. And so, um, you know, he's taught me a lot of things like that. I mean, I think he's also taught me, uh, certainly when I was much younger, um, he was, he's always been a very good negotiator. And, um, it, you know, he's, he, his, his, the way he negotiates is very skillful. It's very articulate. It's uh, very intelligent. And I was able to observe that firsthand because uh, we were working together. And then eventually I was able to accumulate a lot of those lessons in a way that um, while I'm a, I, I'm a different negotiator than he is, uh, I've understood negotiation in a way that I, that I wouldn't have been able to understand had I not been by his side. And that was very helpful. Very cool. There's another mentor you mentioned at some point. I heard or read somewhere uh, a significant mentor, I think, as somebody that I have a ton of respect for, as do most Americans, that's Colin Powell. You have a relationship with him, if I'm not mistaken, or you've had a relationship with him. Same question. Well, first of all, I'd be very curious. How did you meet Colin Powell? That's incredible. Well, <laughs> I, I, go ahead. I, I can't take credit for it. I, I have to give uh, Ron, my partner, credit. So Ron, Ron was, uh, was the U.S. ambassador to the Slovak Republic, uh, and he was sworn in right, you know, right after 9-11. And it was it was an emergency swearing in process where a variety of ambassadors who hadn't been put out to their responsibilities uh, were all brought in in one day and were sworn into uh, into office. And Ron uh, was sworn in by Colin Powell. 
So we wow. got to spend the day with uh, with Colin Powell. And of course, Ron ended up working for him for a while because he went off to to Bratislava in Slovakia, where he was the ambassador. Um, and so there was a couple of different opportunities throughout that time that he was ambassador that I got to meet him again. But uh, an amazing individual that is absolutely uh, what America is all about. And I, I can talk about him for hours. He's amazing. So with Colin Powell, what what lessons have you learned from him as a mentor directly, indirectly? I know you've read a lot of his stuff. Like, what have you learned from him? Well, I think he is, uh, you know, his his actions in battle and off the battlefield. Um, he is such an honorable, ethical, um, outstanding individual. I mean, he really is a hundred percent person. If you read about him and if you see what he does, uh, he's the real deal. And so, um, you know, a lot of people, uh, say they're honorable and ethical and they do the right thing. Um, this guy lives it. And so his leadership lessons are terrific. And so you can see why, you know, people who are about to die will follow this guy into battle. Um, you know, he's trustworthy, you know, he's a lot of credibility. He, you know, he tells it the way it is. I mean, oh man, there's just so many endless lessons when you read through his books and just listen to this guy. I mean, what a classy individual. I mean, I just can't speak enough about him. He's terrific. I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah. It's a, it's an incredible connection to have. And he is, like I said, a true American hero, somebody that, that I've admired from afar, obviously for, for most of, if not all of my life, as long as I've been aware of him anyway. So, (laughs) um, Let's uh, you you started to talk about this a little bit uh, prior to us starting the recording, but sort of I, I frame it as like today's entrepreneur or in the multifamily space or in the commercial space in general. Like you had some some thoughts on that, like the way the way things are today, the you know capital raising, all of that. Can you just kind of espouse some some thoughts on on uh, on today's entrepreneur? Oh, you know what I think what you are doing and all the various things I see you do is absolutely amazing, and I think your generation of entrepreneurs, what you're doing with what I'm going to describe as the democratization of apartment ownership. And the reason why you're democratizing apartment ownership is, you know, through the internet, through social media, through all the different things you're doing. I mean, the things that you do were unheard of when we were growing up. And so, you know, you, I see you like talking about raising capital on the internet, talking about raising capital on social media. I mean, that was unheard of. When you were raising money when we were growing up, it was all country club money. It was friends and family. You, you would, it would take you forever to raise a dollar. Yeah. And, and today you do it much more fluidly. You do it through funds. You do it through syndications. It's terrific. Uh, and, then, and then the same thing with, you know, like finding and deals and buying and selling deals. You know, the, the, what I love too are the, like your, 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 your group that you put together where you have these retreats. And you have, you know, 20, 30, 40 people talking about doing deals and doing deals with each other and, and, and getting together. I mean, holy cow, man, that's like groundbreaking. That is unheard of. I mean, you know, when I when I was, you know, I went I went to school in the Midwest. I went to school after I graduated from engineering school in Miami. I went to school in, in Chicago. I went to the school in Northwestern. And, and so when I got when I graduated, I started my career in the Midwest. Well, you know, there was five people in the Midwest that owned all of the apartments in all the Midwest. And so like, you know, and those people had everything. And so, you know, getting into be one of those five people was like, that was never going to happen. And so breaking into that business was, and and you didn't know who had money, you know, banks didn't advertise, you know, insurance companies didn't advertise, you know, none of the people that were raising or or providing capital and syndication was an impossible thing to to do. And so the fact that you can do it so freely, you can do it so uh, effortlessly. I know it's not effortlessly, but I mean, I just, I just, I just see it seamlessly. It's probably a better word to use. Uh, I think it's absolutely marvelous. But I really love this whole thing that you have this this partnership of people you bring together to talk about 
how to get better with each other and how, how all of you can propel each other to move forward. So not only are you guys talking about deals and raising money, but you're also talking about improving each other, which I think is terrific. So I, I see this whole thing. I mean, you know, I'm an old guy. So I look back and I'm saying, holy cow, man, I wish I was growing up today because this is such a cool time. I think it's marvelous. I compliment you because I think your style is absolutely great because you're very motivational. And no, but I also think it's important because I know, I know, I know your story. I mean, you took some big gambles, you quit a successful career, and you flipped over to become an entrepreneur. So I mean, you're you're walking the walk. You're just like like you're just like kind of one of these people that talks about it and doesn't do it. You're doing it, which is great. But um, this is a very unique time in the multifamily ownership business. I've never seen anything like it. I think it's absolutely spectacular, and I compliment you because I think you're one of the main leaders in this group. And I, I love everything you're doing, but I really think everybody, I mean, I mean, the people around you probably don't realize how unique a time you guys are living. So, I mean, just go for it. It's fabulous. You, you that's thank you. First of all, it's very kind of you to say, and, and uh, you, you answered a question that I was going to ask, which is, well, what advice would you give to today's entrepreneur? And it sounds like that's it. Dive in, go for it, leverage everything that we have right now. Cause you're right. Social media is very easy. You know, you can get lost on it. It can be a trap or you can leverage it just like anything and leveraging it, I think could be a very powerful tool. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I also agree that if, if you're getting in at some very young ages, like all of you are getting in, so here's the thing, you know, a lot of people think this is a, a quick money business. It really isn't. And I always describe, I always say to people, look, you know, it's, it's not a microwave, it's a slow bake. And so what, and so what you got to say, at least for me, you know, you, you're not going to create generational wealth until it's 10, 20 and 30 years down the road. I mean, if I was honest, you know, my partner and I really made our money in the last five to 10 years which is a pretty shocking thing to do because the first 10, 20 and 30 years, you're digging in, you're reinvesting your capital, you're borrowing more money to get back in and doing more deals. And you're constantly go, you know, going into debt candidly to continue to grow your business. And so, and taking some risks. And so, you know, and then boom, the light breaks and all of a sudden you're out of debt and things are different, but that's, that's a long way down the road. And so, you know, for individual assets to mature to the place, they are truly generational and they are truly providing cash flow in a way that is unique isn't isn't a, a zero to five year thing, and and the and the real wealth in our business doesn't come by by buying and flipping and making a profit. The real wealth in our business comes from holding that apartment project, five, ten, fifteen, twenty. When you get to thirty years, things change radically. And so if if you can start at your age and look down the road to what it's going to look like, ten, fifteen, twenty years down the road. Um, you know, once you refinance that building once, twice, three times, and you you pull that cash out, or once you continue to bring the cash flow in, whatever the case may be, I mean, uh, it's 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 transformational. But that's that's how you create long term wealth in our business is by holding quality assets for the long term, because they only get better with time. I mean, I, my view is that rents essentially double every ten to twelve years, and so imagine your your the portfolio value that you own doubling every ten to twelve years, and that's very realistic. I mean, you can do your own math, but I mean, take a look at it. That's quite it's it's not unrealistic. And if you look at a time like now, where we're going into this hyperinflation and rents, yeah. and you know we're and, and 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 if you look at the supply demand imbalance across the country, it's in favor of the apartment owner. So for for anything that you own today. It, it will be not, not arithmetic or geometric, it'll be exponential growth in terms of its cumulative value. So uh, I think the fact that you're doing it now, you're doing it so young and you're doing it uh, in a big way is great because even if you fail a little bit along the way, it doesn't matter. It, it, time will heal those mistakes 
And owning assets for a very long term is the secret to creating generational wealth. I can't thank you enough for saying a lot of that because I know for me, I get impatient, right? You see, and that's probably the downside of social media, right? You see all these people doing amazing things. I mean, even yourself, I mean, you're at a, you're in, you know, stratospheric levels with what you've built with McKinley, but, but still you see people doing these things. You're like, man, yeah, am I moving fast enough or whatever? But to your point, I love what you said. Uh, it's not a microwave. It's a slow bake oven. That's, that's a great line. It's quotable, tweetable even. Um, so yeah, that's, I appreciate you saying that because it means a lot uh, to me to hear. I needed to hear that personally, but with you specifically now with McKinley, like before we started recording, I kind of ran through your bio and we made some modifications on it, right? Like at one point, McKinley was 35,000 units. It was 5 billion uh, in assets under management. There was 10 million square feet of office space and retail, but you've sort of, you've sort of gotten out of some of that. Can you talk to me a little bit about your strategy now, given all that's happening? Like why go, why get smaller at the moment? What is that? What is a guy at your level doing something with a company, the size of McKinley? Like, what is that repositioning strategy looking like and why? Yeah. You know, we're not, we're not getting smaller. What we're doing is we're, we're setting up our business for the generational long-term. Hmm. And so what McKinley looked like, let's say 10 years ago, where we were retail office and multifamily, and we were a multifamily in many markets across the country. It looked like a business of a, from a couple of entrepreneurs who, uh, you know, you know, maybe had maybe had taken a, a, a couple of organizational risks along the way. And, 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 the, and, and you know, we're, we're probably spread, spread a little bit too thin on the geographic dispersion of the span of control. And, it, and, and that wasn't a business that we could lead to a next generation. And so that didn't make a lot of sense. And then the other part of it was, for me at least, I took a cold, hard look at retail. I saw that coming and I got very nervous and I said, let's get out. And we got out of it very early. So we got out actually quite well before values deteriorated. And then I had the same feeling about office. And, you know, at the end of the day, we were apartment guys. Ron mm-hmm. and I are apartment guys. We're not office guys. We're not, we're not, we're not retail guys. We got into those businesses because we, we thought we could make money doing them, but at the, fundamentally we're apartment guys. And so, and then, you know, we, and then we knew, you know, we knew really three markets quite well, uh, you know, metropolitan Ann Arbor, the Ann Arbor region, you know, Ron's from St. Joe, Michigan, and he went to school at, at the university of Michigan. And, you know, I know Florida very well and Orlando or in Tampa are our core markets here. So, you know, we do, we just looked at it and you said, let's, let's just, let's go to where we know what we do best. You know, we're the largest apartment owner in metropolitan Orlando. It's a huge market to be the largest owner in. Um, you know, we got assets, significant nature in Tampa, and we have huge holdings in metropolitan uh, Ann Arbor. And, you know, we don't need to go a lot of places. You know, we market dominate those markets. We, we're, we have a disproportionate market control in the submarkets that we're in in all those markets. Um, you know, you know, why be in other markets across the country where we don't have the same um, um buying power, organizational power, pricing power on rents, all the above. Um, it just didn't make sense. So, you know, we sold off at, at times in the last three, four, five years at times where people, in my opinion, probably overpaid us for properties and places I, sh- I wasn't interested in owning long-term. So we consolidated that and made sense for us long-term. So getting out of retail made sense, getting out of office made sense, selling those apartment assets at a peak price, what I consider to be non-peak assets, in necessarily not great markets that I didn't have long-term faith in. Um, so now we have an amazingly strong portfolio where uh, we have all of the people that are with us every single day have been in those markets. You know, our people have been there 10, 20, and 30 years. So they know those markets well. And so, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to out-hustle people. Um, you know, our financing and our capitalization is, is, is uniquely different. There's, you know, the, you know, we went from a leveraged business at young age to an unleveraged business at an older age. 
So all the different things that you need to have to be you know, a, more powerful in a market, we've got now. And so, um, but for us, it was strategic. It, you know, it didn't make sense to be in the, in, the, in the retail business. It didn't make sense for us to be in the office business. It didn't make sense for us to be in, 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 in eight or nine markets when we really needed to be in three. And so all of those things uh, is what we've been working on and we've been fortunate. And then so, you know, we refinanced our entire portfolio for the long term. And, and so we've done all the right things. We're now, it's a generational business. It's a business that works well. We have to get up every single morning and work hard every day, but it's a logical business. Uh, the span of control makes a lot of sense. The geographic dispersion makes a lot of sense. Uh, we, you know, we invest enormously in our assets. So all of our assets are positioned for the long term. Um, you know, this is a business you can't replace. And so, you know, even when we're dead and gone, you, no one's going to want to touch this thing. It's just too valuable. What do you do with the money? You, you, where else would you put it? That's, well, that's a fair question. And the other part, like, so 2015, 16, I'm sure, I think I've heard you, you know, kind of like, ah, something's going to come here. I could see something coming, put money on the sidelines. 2018, nothing came, still compressed cap rates. All right, and then here we are in 2021. How long? <laughs> I mean, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but like, how long does this run? Like, what is the possibility? Is, is the supply demand dynamic enough for this to have a tail, meaning the, the uptick in value, the up and to the right sort of trajectory of multifamily? Or do you still see... I think COVID, we assumed, would have done it, right? Like that would—that was going to be kind of the, the beginning of a downturn. At least I did, but you obviously know much more than I do, given your experience with past downturns. Like, what's the what's the trajectory of multifamily over the next two, three, five years? If you if you had a crystal ball, uh, I, I think that the supply demand demand imbalance is the differentiating factor this time around. So I don't. I don't know. You see, so if you if you look at all the apartment, let, let me just let's just talk about workforce housing, which is what I do for a living. Yeah. So if you look at all the apartments that are quote unquote characterized as workforce housing, and, and you look at across our portfolio, let's say the rents are eleven to twelve hundred dollars a month, and and so um, you know those buildings were built between nineteen sixty and nineteen ninety. Mm. Every time you go out and buy a B or, or C garden apartment, it's going to be that sixties, seventies, eighties, and nineties vintage product. After that. Anything that's been built recently is, you know, certainly in the last 10 years is, you know, as class A or triple A or super A's, as I call them. And, you know, those things are $2,000 a month and more. And that's just to cover the debt service at a break even forget about making any money. So, you know, it, it, you can't go back and reproduce workforce housing. It was a period in time where we built a lot of housing. And, and so that's a period that's not coming back. And then the other problem you got is, you know, you got this five and a half million overhang of single family homes that we didn't build over the last decade. And you've got all these institutional investors that are buying homes. So people that are typically people that would have moved out of my places and moved in and to buy a house, they're now crowded out because, you know, all these Wall Street guys are coming in and buying single family homes. It used to be, you know, there was one in six was an investor. Well, I think in a place like Miami or Orlando, it's like one in three mm -hmm. are being bought by investors. Mm -hmm. So you know, the combination of the single family opportunities going away for that renter and the number of choices where they can rent at $1,100 a month going away. I've never seen a supply to balance and balance in my entire life that it, and you know, and I, I started the business in 1979. So it's been a while. I mean, too, too long, but um, it's a, it's a unique situation that I don't know where we go from here. Cause I think there's political risk, right? I mean, there, you know, there's a lot of people that are, you know, worried about things like rent control and things like that that come about when you know there's just so much upward pressure in rent, and there's no new supply coming in to satisfy that need. Um, you know, so it's not just affordable housing; it's really that tier above that, which is what I do for a living, which is workforce housing. So, you know, at least in the markets that we're in, 
Um, there, you really can't expect to bring in new supply at the rents that we're providing people homes at. And so it's a very unique opportunity for us because, you know, it's, uh, it's certainly uh, an important opportunity um, from, from, a, from a profitability side. But, um, I, you know, I don't. So to answer your question, in, in the space that I see you investing in, which is what I'll call B&C Garden Apartments, yeah. I, I see a long run. Yeah. Well, I hope you're right. <laughs> I hope you're right. Cause yeah, I mean, I, I do too. And it's hard to, it's hard to project the downturn, but man, having you on this call, of course, I need to ask that question. So I appreciate being so open and honest about it again. I know who knows, right? Nobody saw COVID coming. Nobody saw a lot of things coming, but that's a logical, logical point. The supply demand imbalance specific to workforce housing in these markets. Yeah. You, you can't build more. There's, there's, there's no product for those folks to go to. So that nope. makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, with your experience, I do kind of want to run through, if they don't mind, I'm going to give you three different years. And I'm just okay. kind of curious your reaction to those years, given the experience. Like what, what comes up when you, when you hear these years for you professionally, personally? So let's start with 1982. Uh, well, 82, I was still in the banking business. I was just getting out of the banking business and going to the development business for the very first time. Uh, interest rates were uh, 21%. And um, it was a scary time. And so, uh, it, you know, it was a very different time. And so, uh, you know, there was no capital, you know, the disintermediation of capital was, was, was real at that time. And so, I don't know, it was just, it was, a, it was, it was fun for me because I was a young kid and I was learning a lot and it didn't matter what kind of mistakes I made, but, but it, was, uh, it was a very strange time in, 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 the, in, in the history of apartments, let's call it that. And then of course, what came after that was this, you know, ma massive ballooning of, you know, the early parts of the syndication business and people building a whole lot of the product that I call today workforce housing. Because if yeah, you look yeah. at all that product that was built between like 82 and 89, 82 before the crash, um, 1991, um, you know, that was a re sort of the renaissance of, of development and, 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 you know, people were, were doing tax syndications. You give, you, you know, you three to one write-offs, four to one write-offs, five to one write-offs. It was just, it was a, it was a fun time. So 1991 was the second date I was going to ask you about. I think that was, uh, you were fully in the apartment industry at that point. What was that year like for you? Because there was a massive downturn that year. Yeah, stay alive to 95 was uh, Sam Zell's famous speech, right? I mean, that's really what it was all about. I mean, so I that. Yeah. Uh, stay alive to 95. That was, that's what 91 was all about. And and it was, a, you know, you, 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 that's all we did was we just, we just hung on. I mean, we were dead and gone and bankrupt and we just, we just hung on. And so Sam's saying, you know, Sam, my partner and Sam went to school together. Um, there was a there was a big uh, lecture at the University of Michigan Business School where Ron and, and Sam spoke. And that's where that famous saying came from. Sam saying, stay alive to 95. And and the answer is he was right. And that was before, you know, he, he got into the REIT business and, and, and just at the very start of the REIT business. Uh, and he was beginning to capitalize via REITs. It didn't really exist before then. And so, um, you know, raising capital was different and, and nobody had any capital for that matter. So staying alive to 95 was important. Wow. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Now, fast forward to 2008. What was that year like at that point for you or 2009? Uh, yeah, eight and nine was good. I mean, you know, so we took some stupid risks because we had more capital then. And so we knew that we had to go for it. And so we bought, uh, you know, we, we bought a lot of buildings and uh, we probably bought a billion dollars in buildings in a very short period of time. So, wow. um, um, and, and not all intelligently and a little bit, you know, over the edge, but as it turns out over the last next 10 years, uh, it's more than paid off, but uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I felt like since we weren't able to do that in 91, um, as much as we'd like to that, you know, we went, we went for it. And so we, it, it paid off. Is so that, we took so that's, I'm sorry. 
No, I was going to say we, 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 we took educated risk. We thought we had um, everything figured out. And, you know, we obviously, like, like anything in business, you don't, but we, it, we've come out this other side quite, quite spectacularly with, and, we're, and we're pleased for that. So what advice would you give to somebody like me or somebody that has, you know, two, three, 400 units of, of, uh, of, like you said, garden style, class B, class C apartments going into this, what seems like maybe a longer tail on, on uh, rent increases, value increases based on your experience in those, those three prior downturns. And it sounds like by 08, you, you kind of, you know, you knew what to do and you, you bought a bunch. And like you said, over time, real estate has a tendency to forgive you. So even if you made some, some risky moves, if you will, it, it was, it was good in the long run. What advice yes. do you give to the investor today in preparation for, I mean, there's going to be another downturn at some point, I would guess. So what advice do you, like, how does somebody prepare themselves or do they right now? Is it just buy what you can? I'm kind of curious what advice you would give me or anybody in that space. Well, I mean, you know, the way, the best way you can prepare for a downturn a recession is, is, is capitalization. So to the extent that you can not over leverage your asset, um, you'll have that cushion that you don't have if, unless, if, as, as opposed to having a levered asset. So, you know, one of the things that we're doing now in our current life, which is obviously where we have the, ca- the capital capacity to do it, is we're putting an enormous amount of capital upfront, and which we never did before when we were growing up. And so that's, you know, that's that buffer that is, is a logical, you know, funds do it all the time. You know, uh, private equity does it all the time. They, you know, they put it, they put in forty percent equity and sixty percent debt. You know, we never were able to do that because we were growing up with our, and we only, we always only tried to grow with our own money. We always made it a point of not bringing in other people's money after we left the syndication business because we wanted to have control. And so we, we purposely never went out and raised capital. Even that, that that constrained our ability to grow, but it gave us complete control of our business, which at the end result was certainly worth it. But um, you know, I would say, you know, capitalization can cure a lot of problems in a recession. And so, you know, if you're at a 90% leverage rate, it's a lot different than you're at 60. What do you, do you target a specific percentage or do you recommend a specific percentage? That might be an overly literal question, but is 80 or 70 or 75 kind of a, a benchmark that you use or just curious? Well, the numbers for us are got, gotten up the older we've gotten, but uh, so I guess more conservative in time, but uh, you know, I, you know, to me today, you know, and the deals that we're doing today are, you know, probably mostly 70, 30. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. That seems, that seems very, uh, like you said, very uh, uh, safe and from a leverage perspective. So that makes sense. And if we need to put more money, we got it there. So, so, you know, we're ready either way. But I think the answer to your question is I would be looking to where, you know, the markets and you understand the rents and you understand the operations and, you know, for me, by the way, I should make a point. I mean, we've always been an owner operator. So I don't, you know, I, I've never been in the business of letting somebody else third party manage our assets. It's just not, it's just, that wouldn't be acceptable to us. You know, we're obsessive compulsive. We are maniacal operators. So it, it wouldn't work with us in our mental, mental profile. So, you know, that gets back to the whole geographic dispersion and span of control thing I talked to you about earlier, which is why we're now back to three markets because we know those markets so well and, and we can, and we can, we can massively control what goes on in those markets. But anyways, I mean, for me, if you know your stuff, if you know your markets and you've got the capital with you and your partners to do it, I would buy assets right now. I know everybody says it's a bad time to buy assets, but I mean, I think if you do it prudently, well-capitalized, I, you know, I, trying to time the entry point to have an expectation there's going to be this massive downturn, you're going to be able to buy a whole lot of stuff, man, you better be good and know what you're doing. You know, you're the you're the second. Uh, you met uh, David Osborne. I, I don't know if you recall the conversation with him. I had introduced the two of you to one another. He's a gentleman that's you know done very well for himself in the real estate space as well. And and his his advice is very similar. So when you hear it from two smart guys who have the experience, who have the uh, the size of portfolio that you do, and all the backing behind you, then 
It makes sense. Buy assets. That's the advice for everybody. Buy assets. It makes perfect sense to me, especially in an inflationary environment. Um, what's and keeping you up right now I'm at night? Never, if anything? never sell them, by the way. Buy them and yeah, never, never sell them. them. Yeah. You said that I'm a buyer, not a seller of real estate, right? That's kind of your, your mantra. Buy, but don't sell. Yeah. Yep. That's us. Beautiful. Beautiful. What's keeping you up at night right now, if anything, personally, professionally, for that matter? I got a new dog during COVID and he's a cute little guy. He's so adorable. Uh, so he keeps me up at night, but it's a good, a good keep me up at night. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. What, what, what advice, if you could, could go back to 25, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self at this point with what you know now? I wouldn't do anything different. I do everything exactly the same. And, I, and I'd marry the same woman at 25 that I married at 25. So I, I can't go wrong with that. Not at all. If you were 90, looking back at now, what's your 90-year-old self going to tell you today? What advice is he going to give you? A young kid didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> and every I like time that. I look back along the way, that's probably, that's probably what I can say about myself. But you know, here we go. You just keep on going. That's amazing. Any books that you recommend? Any book that you're reading right now that you could speak to? Just any, anything that you're getting educated on that you could share? Uh, you know, I, I, we talked earlier about the Colin Bow books. Grab all of them. Read all of them. They're fabulous. Yeah, a, yeah, that's a good person to listen to. So with, uh, with uh, GoBundance, we have this saying, like we're, we're all aspiring to grab life big. Uh, in closing, I'm just kind of curious if, there, if you can recall whatever it is, a possession, an item that you purchased, a moment, a memory, whatever it may be, the first time you recall that you maybe just grabbed life big, what would that be? I'm not there yet, so I don't know. Still going. Well, I mean, I think that's, you know, I mean, I talked to my wife about this a whole lot. I think it gets back to the immigrant mentality. And, and you know, I talked to my partner about this a whole lot. Uh, we haven't made it, man. We're not, we're, we're not done until we go, you know, until we've got a lot, we've got still, we've got a lot of work ahead of us. I mean, I, I guess, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I'm, I'm there yet. I mean, I got to get up tomorrow morning and work hard because I mean, I don't take anything for granted. I, I, uh, I, I, I give him my absolute best every single day, regardless. So I'm, I have not arrived and I don't expect to arrive. That's a great, great answer. I, I'm just kind of curious as a side to that. So how do you, what's your relationship with comfort and discomfort? Do you intentionally try to get yourself out of your comfort zone? Or I'm, I'm kind of curious what your, what your take is on that. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I don't try to get myself out of my comfort zone. I'm just, I mean, I think it gets back to being an immigrant. I mean, I just, you know, any day you can be, you know, your life can change. And so you've got to be ready. And so I don't, I don't know. I don't, I just, I don't believe in this whole, I've arrived thing. I just, I mean, I don't, I'm not there. I, it's not my, that's not who I am. Now, like I, they I, say, you're, you're growing or you're dying, right? So you're, you're yeah. in growth mode always. I, I'm appreciative as I'll get out and I don't take anything for granted. Makes sense. Makes sense. Albert, uh, where, if, uh, if somebody wanted to learn more about you, McKinley, what's the best place that you would direct them at this point? Yeah, they can go to our webpage, uh, McKinley.com or www.mckinley.com. Uh, and, and, you know, I'd lo love to have anybody go on there and take a look at what we do. And we're proud of it. And uh, it's our life's work. So, uh, you know, we're, we're very proud of what we've done. Yeah. Well, I, like I'm, I'm blown away at the fact that I have you here. It's been, uh, it's been an absolute coup for me. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, it's, it's major contribution on your part to just sort of impart your wisdom on, on me and on all of the listeners of this podcast. So just emphatically, I want to say thank you for being here. And I appreciate you taking the time today. I appreciate you. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for watching. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Let us know down in the comments and make sure you hit that subscribe button. Hit that notification bell so you can be informed on the next episode and other content right here on this channel. Thank you.